I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. From the Boston Globe... This is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Hey, everyone. I hope you're all having a lovely summer. We're back with a special bonus episode of Love Letters, something to tide you over until season two. And we're here to talk about camp. I've always been fascinated by camp love and what happens when the summer ends. Maybe that's because I've never known camp love myself. See, I didn't go to sleepaway camp. I've never known that sense of freedom, that bonding, and yeah, that love. In my imagination, my camp boyfriend would have taken me to the Kissing Rock or some field of wildflowers where campers make out. In this fantasy, by the way, I have no allergies and could frolic in a field of wildflowers without getting eczema. To explore the idea of camp love and the end of summer loss that comes with it, I figured I'd go to the experts. I started with David Wayne, He's the architect of the classic summer camp movie Wet Hot American Summer and the recent Netflix series of the same name. If you haven't seen it, Wet Hot is a hilarious send-up of summer camp romance. David says he drew heavily on his experiences at a Jewish camp in Maine as a kid, like the time he borrowed a camp van as a teenager and tried to sneak back and visit this girl. I had a crush on a girl, and I kissed her one night and then had to leave the next day to drive a bunch of kids to an overnight in Baxter State Park. And I was so anxious to see this girl again that I left them there with the other counselor and drove back late at night. The hundreds of reasons why that was stupid did not occur to me. I was driving through the forest, and I was blasting the music so that I could stay awake. Plus, I didn't really know how to drive. Plus, I'm speeding. Plus, it's a very dark, windy road in the middle of a giant state park. And then at one point, I smashed into a tree and slammed into what I thought was the brake, but it was the accelerator. So I slammed even further into this tree, lodging the fender into the tire to such a point there's no way I could move this van. It's pitch black, and this is pre-cell phones. David's only option is to find his way back to the campsite on foot. I could barely see my hand in front of my eyes. Finally made it back to uh, where the rest of the group was and was like, you know, I'm so sorry. And they found the ranger and they had to unlodge the van later. And I talked to the director of the camp finally the next day and he said, never again are we letting junior counselors drive the vehicles. So does he get the girl? It worked out for the two weeks that the relationship was destined to be. Okay, so it worked out with her, (laughs) at least temporarily. Two weeks is like a year in camp time. So much happens in a day. You know, relationships start and end in a day, for real. I have always felt from before I was a writer that summer camp is such a rich area because of what we're talking about, how it's this singular heightened place where all these people come together with strong drives and deeply felt feelings and and new experiences and and it's fun and sexy to me and I was shocked and I continued to be surprised that there aren't more summer camp stories. Well this is awesome. Thank you so so much. This was great. My pleasure. 
David and I also talked about this unique opportunity you have at camp to reinvent yourself, to become someone else, or maybe to find your true self. At camp, you can be cooler than you are back at home, sportier, more connected to your religion. Maybe it's a safer place to come out. Sometimes it's at camp that we discover who we really are and what we really value in life and in other people. And sometimes those discoveries come at a pretty early age. I started to ask around about people's camp romances. That's how I met Tara. She's a graphic designer who lives outside Boston. She's in her 50s. Her family founded and still runs Camp Skodak, a sleepaway camp nestled between Albany, New York, and the Berkshires. Hey, Tara, thanks for chatting. Hi, Meredith. From the time she was five years old, Tara spent every summer at Camp Skodak. She couldn't imagine being anywhere else. I still get a, a chill when I drive to camp around, coming around that last bend. The camp is on two sides of a road. On one side is primarily bunks and a dining hall, and on the other side there was a playhouse and a golf course. And Camp was like place. one big summer-long sleepover party, Tara says. Part of what made it so fun and memorable? Camp love. Camp love is a special kind of love. Maybe because you know from the start that it can only last a couple of months. The loves at camp were always really different than at school or anywhere else. They really did take on this special glow, just like the friendships did. There were a lot of camp couples that were together summer after summer. And I do think there just was, there is something special about those feelings. They had dances maybe once or twice a week. They had something called Sadie Hawkins Day, where they would have boys They'd run, and then the girls would chase them, and they'd catch their boy, and you'd go get married. That would not happen now. No, with pipe cleaner rings. I got married, you know, every, every year as I camp, I got, I got married. I've got all the, the rings to prove it. And then, when the summer was over, people went home. The love ended, or at least was put in storage until the following summer. Sure, it was sad, but everyone knew the deal. You would probably exchange a letter or two, maybe a phone call, if you were allowed to make long-distance phone calls back in the day. But I think it was pretty accepted that everyone just goes back to their own lives and see you next summer. Let's talk about, like, the first camp boyfriend that was for real. Well, that's probably Mark. I want to say I was probably around 11. I do think I had another boyfriend the summer before him who was the best athlete in the bunk, and I really I liked him, but I don't really remember having anything super special about it. And then Mark came to camp, and he was even better athlete, and he was so handsome, and um, I don't know. I just know I loved him. From the second I saw him, I loved him. <laughs> he just had dark skin and dark hair, and he was just big, and he was great at every sport. We would always dance together. We'd sit next to each other at movies. We would go to this amusement park, and he would win me a stuffed animal. There was a kid in his bunk. I think he had diabetes, and he was not in Mark's friend group, but I remember we were at a cookout, and this kid went into some sort of diabetic episode. And Mark, without missing a beat, just scooped up this kid and ran him to the health center. And... I just remember thinking he was so heroic. Tara remembers their first kiss vividly. Yeah, it was after a night activity. There was 
the road in the middle of the camp and we had to cross the road and I don't know, we were by the fence crossing the road. I remember he had braces. <laughs> so I remember he had really soft lips, but then there was the braces going on too. But I think I was probably just really excited to kiss him. For three summers in a row, Tara and Mark are boyfriend-girlfriend, a sweet time that all kind of runs together in Tara's memory. And then when Tara is about 14, she shows up to Camp Skodak for the summer, and Mark isn't there. He hasn't come back. Their young romance evaporates. So Tara moves on. She finds new camp boyfriends. She and Mark lose touch. I don't really remember hearing about him, or, and I certainly never saw him. And I didn't, I didn't know where he went to college or anything. But somewhere deep in her psyche, Mark remains. We'll be right back after the break. How often would you think of him? I don't think I really thought of him very much over the years, but I dreamt about him. I would have dreams. So tell me about those dreams. Sometimes I would have dreams that there was a reunion and I was seeing him again. But he still was a little boy in those dreams. He wasn't an adult. I don't think I, he was however I left him last. I think there just was a very pure love, that feeling that I had from, you know, he was probably just the first taste of having that attraction and real feeling. Tara meets another guy out of college, a friend of her sister's. They get married. They have twins, a girl and a boy. But after eight years, their marriage falls apart. Unbeknownst to her, Mark has also gotten married, also had children, also seen his marriage dissolve. So, more than 20 years after Tara and Mark had first met at camp, her sister and his sister, who had remained friends, conspire to reconnect them. It's the early 2000s or so. Tara doesn't know what to expect. She's never known Mark as a grown-up. He called me, and we had a couple conversations. We met up in New York. We had one date. Tara does feel a connection again, but the timing just isn't right. He had young children in New York, and I had young children in Boston, and I, we didn't pursue it after that date. We're just a little too practical. For both of us, our kids were pretty much a priority at that point. So Tara and Mark return to their respective lives, raising kids, life. Like 15 more years pass, and now social media exists. Now we're on Facebook, and... We're both in other relationships, and I see he's in Barcelona with her. I had just been in Barcelona with my boyfriend. I tell him where to go, and I'm happy for him. He's happy for me. It's a very periphery thing. We just maybe liked each other's posts or occasionally would send a text, but nothing really significant. By 2017, Tara has an eight-year relationship that's coming to an end. Mark is also ending a relationship. We talked a couple of times, and then I got the drunken text. Do you remember anything about, like, what the text said? Of course I remember every word that the text said. But um, 
basically, he just seemed to really like who he thought I had become, and he just had a feeling that there's a possibility of a shared life together and that he realizes how ridiculous that sounded, but that, you know, we should see each other. And so we did. (laughs) Mark tells her there's a medical conference in Boston he wants to attend. He proposes getting together. She's gun-shy because her previous relationship has, like, just ended. But she agrees. And I thought, I'd be crazy just not to take a look, see, you know, it doesn't have to be anything. If it's, But if it's not anything, then we don't have to waste our time. And when we saw each other, yeah, we were holding hands in the Boston Common within 10 minutes, and there was definitely still something there. Like camp. Like camp. You know, it took a little while, I think, for me to consciously stop trying to look for that camp boy and look at the man that was truly in front of me because there was this romantic notion there. But I wanted to be realistic about, you know, (laughs) this isn't Mark and Tara from 1978. You know, we are here. and But I think, you know, obviously as we got to know each other, sometimes we still just say, can you believe this is us? Now that we've reacquainted in adult life, I feel like there was more to it than I knew. I thought, wow, I was really smart when I was 11 and 12. And the things that I projected onto him were a lot more real than I knew. I do feel like there was a sense of him being more soulful and being this caring person and being really mentally strong, those kinds of things. I I feel like I did know them somehow. What would he say were those things about you? I think you'd have to ask him that. So we got Mark on the phone and we asked him, what was it about Tara that drew you to her? that she always looked for the goodness in people, you know? And I was always more, like, cynical and skeptical of people's motivations. She was always very pure and kind of honest, um, and so I really liked that quality, and she still has that today. She's, like, living in the summer of love <laughs> as we speak. Now, she, you know, she was laughing and said this was a drunken text. Was this a drunken text? Drunken text? I I had a couple of pina coladas. Yes, definitely. I mean, it took like (laughs) a little bit of courage because I didn't know. I wasn't sure exactly what the response would be. Wait, do you have that? Did you have that that text handy? Would it be too much to ask for you to read a little bit of it or some of it? Or Uh, you want me to read a bit? (laughs) Yeah. I texted her, um, Tara. In my hopes and dreams, I thought we would see each other again and feel a sense of warmth, belonging, desire, and attachment that would wash over the both of us. All of those feelings that I thought would come over me... This goes on for a while. The text Mark sent to Tara, one single text, was several hundred words long. In my 10 years as an advice columnist, I've never seen a confessional drunken relationship text this long. After I sent the text, all she wrote me back was basically like, holy shit, Mark. (laughs) More than a year after that text, Mark and Tara remained together. They still live in different cities, but they're making it work. 
Their kids are older, so it's easier to see each other now. They've even visited Camp Skodak together. They found their faces in old photographs hung in the office and their names on plaques from their old bunks. If you had advice for people leaving a love at camp behind who are sort of feeling that pain, what would you tell them? Live their life. Enjoy their good feelings and good memories and good experiences and treasure it. I don't really believe in fate or meant to be. I think Mark believes in that maybe a little more than I do. But I do think that if it's meant to be, you'll get back around to it. Those instincts that you have at an early age, there's something to them. More, there's more to them than you think. There was a reason why we always kind of found each other again. That's why, you know, when I, when I have my kids and they feel something for somebody, that those are, it's not like just something to be dismissed. And I recently found, when we got back together, an old yearbook that he had signed. It said, Dear Tara, you're a really great kid. This wasn't our best summer, but we worked it out in the end. Neither one of us can remember what could have been going on. <laughs> and then he said, we'll always, we'll be, always together be together through thick and thin. thick and thin. Love, Mark. Wow. So now he says to me, how many people would keep that promise? So, Not bad. Thank you so much for sharing this story. I hope that there are many more trips to camp for the two of you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your story, Mark. Well, thank you very much. It does make me feel a little emotional to share it, but I'm happy to share it, and I'm glad you enjoy it. So there are some lessons here, I think. The first, which we learned from Tara and Mark, applies to anyone who falls in love at a young age. Maybe we shouldn't ignore the instincts we have when we're young. Maybe they really can point us in the right direction. Another lesson, for me at least, is this. One of the biggest things I missed by not going to sleepaway camp was the experience of reinvention. My friends got to be someone new during those summers. Maybe that's part of what they fell in love with. But what if we don't need summer camp to make that transformation? If we, single people especially, start acting like who we'd want to be at camp, the kind of person you'd want to kiss in a field of wildflowers, maybe we can love ourselves a little bit more. We can become that person we want to be. Before Tara left, we begged her to sing us any camp songs that she still remembered. She's going to be completely mortified that we're using this. But how could we not? It's just too good. The boys at Camp Skodak will never be Tall, dark, and handsome, and six foot three The boys we call our own Will wear glasses and braces and smell of B.O. Their nails will be polished and in their hair They'll wear a blue ribbon from county fair And they will say to us Roses are red, violets are blue my name is Melvin. May I dance with you? <laughs> <laughs> but you found the tall, dark, and handsome one. I did.
Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe. This episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Scott Hellman. Our executive producer is Janice Page. Audio mixing by John Jenkins. Music by APM and Scott Hellman. Special thanks to Amy Padula, Brian McGrory, Joseph Tavares, and Linda Henry. If this is the first episode of Love Letters you've heard, please go back and check out Season 1, which is all about how to get over a breakup. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're online at loveletters.show. Send us a note at loveletters at boston.com or tweet at us using the hashtag loveletterspodcast. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.